because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Texas Legends Associate Head Coach Nelson Taroba to the Basketball Podcast. Nelson has filled many roles for the Texas Legends, an NBA G League affiliate of the Dallas Mavericks, including defensive coordinator, play development coach, and associate head coach. He has been with the Legends since 2019. Nelson has coached at the professional level for the Saskatchewan Rattlers, St. John Riptide, Erie Bayhawks, Bakersfield Jam. He has also been an assistant coach with the Congo national team and a high school coach. Nelson started his coaching career at the University of Texas, where he first served as a student manager and later became the special assistant to the head coach under Rick Barnes. Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Coach, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, listen to a, uh, a lot of these, so it's it's kind of uh, interesting for me to be on here on the hot seat, but I appreciate you having me. Yeah, there's no hot seat here. It's just fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm grateful for you. We've had a chance to get to know each other uh, and, uh, you know, learned a lot from you already. And I'm looking forward to learning more and, uh, you know, excited for the path you're on a little bit, too, and for you to share it with our audience, particularly around this concept of modern functional coaching. Maybe first, let's start with what is modern functional coaching? Well, you know, I, you know, I hate to kind of, you know, trademark it or kind of create so too much, uh, you know, uh, buzz around the phrase, but what it is is, uh, you know, one of my uh, former assistant coaches in a, in a um, uh, player who kind of played for one of my good friends and coaching, Thomas Acker. His name is Terrell Murray. He's a, a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan now, and he was an assistant for me at St. John in um, NBL Canada. So um, we worked together, you know, for a full season and NBL Canada for all that, that know, uh, is, is the best training on earth for, uh, for coaching and anything that comes up as part of coaching. So we, we got to kind of work together and, and, um, he's teaching and, and, and getting into the, the sports leadership side of things. So he asked me if I would come speak to their college course, uh, their students who are aspiring coaches about something regarding coaching. And this is something that kind of came up because I just, after watching coach and being part of coaching, seeing so many coaches, um, we all get caught up in the uh, the details of the X's and O's, the strategy, the tactics, all those kind of things, uh, which is natural. I'm one of them. Um, but what I saw is there's a lot of, I guess there's kind of, sometimes I call it a copy and paste coach who copies and pastes, you know, what they hear, what they see, but there's something missing from the delivery and from the interaction that I think makes it stick. Um, so for me, uh, that's kind of this model and, and uh, modern functional coaching is something I called it, but basically it's just, it starts with uh, authenticity. You know, I think that's the, the start of it all. Um, read a book, you know, I'm sure many coaches have read it, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Um, great book, but it's, you know, the thing he talks about, he studies all these great companies and historically great companies. And he tried to figure out what made these companies that were consistently great performers in the stock market, I think 15 years or more consecutively, they outperformed the predictions and everything else to try to see, is there a pattern of behavior between all these companies that brings it together? Uh, and one of the things he talked about was level five leadership. 
um, and level five leadership. When I read it, I was like, wow, that's that's fantastic. Like, it's not what everybody thinks leadership is. It's the the kind of more humble leaders that kind of moved up through the ranks. These companies usually move people up from within the ranks that were more humble. But uh, for me, authenticity is kind of that that cornerstone of this model. And, and, and what, what I have listed is kind of level five humility. You have to be really good at what you do. You have to be a confident leader. You have to be a dynamic leader, dynamic communicator, all those things. But you also have to retain this kind of um, unique and sometimes it doesn't make sense for people, this humility about you that is very much, I don't want the spotlight. I don't care for it. So I think for me, you know, the, the modern functional coaching model starts with a leader who truly is okay with pushing all the credit out to everyone around him or her. Um, so that's the first step is kind of authenticity. We know we're both on board with this. Uh, you know, the basic premise being there's a better way and mostly a focus on not what to coach, because, again, we can share all that with coaches, but it's more about how to coach and how to approach it from there's a better way. And we know this in modern society. Coach mm -hmm. everyone like pros. But if you think about it, you are not yelling at a pro. You're not ripping into a pro. You're not treating them any differently than you would treat yourself. And that's right. a big part of this, isn't it? In terms of how we communicate and we go, we move away from this old school model of transactional leadership. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, uh, you know, and, and, and I hadn't heard that from uh, Joe Mazzula, but that's exactly right. Treat them like pros, coach them like pros. Uh, we can't, and this, this model actually is probably born out of that experience too, because uh, you know, when you're young or if you're coaching high schoolers, middle schoolers, college, even, and you have this positional authority over your players, a lot of times you can get away with saying things in a certain way or or not even being on top of your game enough. And those those players who are younger than you can't challenge you on it. Uh, they are not going to be in position to do that. Maybe they may not even know enough to know that what they're experiencing is is not sound. So having been, you know, a high school coach for 10 years, you know, coached it, you know, a little bit at the University of Texas with special assistant when I got started. Um, as a student manager there before then. So I've kind of been, you know, I did the pro thing. I've been I've, I've, uh, overseeing an AAU program in, in Austin, Syntex Attack, and kind of formed that from scratch. And so I've seen basketball from all levels and all angles. And I think that that's what I've learned is, is even as a young coach, I would get more into this, you know, I call it narrative-based coaching. You know, the, you know, did you, you guys aren't trying, you know, you guys didn't come ready to play um, what's going on, you know, outside of the court, you guys look like you stayed up late last night, all these big narratives about this guy looks like he gets into the wrong things, you know, uh, away from the court. And I just learned over the years that like, that just doesn't matter. Like what, what matters is, you know, I tell our players, if I have them as a head coach, all I, you know, do what you want away from the court, this is professional players. Uh, but when you step into the building, all I care is that you are ready to do your job when you're inside these four walls. You know, obviously represent our program well, don't do anything out of the ordinary. But beyond that, I don't care what you do beyond that. That's your personal choices. But that goes to, you know, the second part of, of this, this model, if, they, if it is a model, is, is besides being authentic, the, the feedback has to be diagnostic, you know, specific and measurable. When I go to the doctor, I don't want them to say, looks like you, you've been having a couple tough days doesn't matter if I've had a tough day or not. I just want to know why does my stomach hurt? You know, 
Um, so just be diagnostic. Hey, you, you're not blocking out right now when the shot goes up. I'd like you to put a forearm in the chest. I'd like you to push out, you know, two steps, find the ball, chin it, and then let's go the other way. Whenever the shot goes up, I need to have a, a forearm on a chest and I need you to check and then, you know, drive them and then find the ball. You know, something specific um, in terms of what it, what what's wrong. Like sometimes, you know, coaches will say, this is unacceptable or that's not us or uh, this can't happen. But just tell them what it is you're talking about, what specifically is going wrong, very specifically. And then and then the second, the third part of it is now you got to be prescriptive. I've told you what's wrong. Now you're doing this behavior. Now I need to tell you the substitute behavior that you need to fill into that that space so that we can eliminate the bad behavior and replace it with a good one. So we're going to dive deeper into all of these parts of the model and especially around feedback because I love that conversation. And let's go back first. Why do coaches have a hard time accepting this and changing and trying to adapt new ways? Because I'll tell you, I was not perfect and I'm I'm still not perfect. And I still struggle because I was brought up as a coach and a player in an era where everyone yelled at everyone to get something done. And it was very transactional. And we're always fighting that in terms of that's what was modeled for us. And that's how it is. And even to this day, Nelson, we see this. If something's posted on Twitter or you watch one of these documentaries and the way a coach is represented, and immediately if you argue against that type of hard coaching, someone will say, oh, you're soft. Kids are soft. Mm -hmm. And that's like the default argument. Oh, we're developing soft people if we're not coaching them hard. So talk to us a little bit going back to all that about why we have a hard time changing to this type of model, which is common sense and the way we would all want to be treated. Well, it's, well, it's easy for me because uh, the reason I adopted this model is because I got fired <laughs> when I was young. I was a high school varsity coach uh, at the age of 26, uh, my first head coaching job, 26, and at my own alma mater, my own high school um, in Texas. And one of the things that, you know, within two years I had, you know, I'd been fired. And what had happened is that we we had some, ta- you know, talented players um and i got into you know kind of uh behavioral battles with you know these players or you know because of you know what i thought was selfish behavior what i thought was not good for the team i don't think i was wrong but what i didn't know then is is i thought it was just enough to to be right in terms of like it's enough to know that I, what i'm saying is right like i'm calling out the behavior right I, i'm right um, but what I what I learned is that, you know, it, basically once I lost my job, it was really tough on me personally as far as a coach. I mean, it really had to reflect. But I guess I got to the point where I got over it and said, you know, when you think about the really great teachers, you know, the classroom teachers, um, you can't be a great teacher if all you can do is reach the loyal soldier, the, the student who sits at the front of the class, the great person who pays attention and picks up all the concepts the first time you know that's not and i've caught i've taught in the classroom i've taught you know uh regular ed you know i've taught ap pre-ap i've taught all you know all levels and to me the best teachers obviously are the ones that can find that tricky student that challenging student they can reach those challenging students they know a way to engage the students in all kinds of manners because they have such a command over the curriculum 
and they know how to move between spaces quickly. And they also have a command over the people they're dealing with and the, the various personality types. And that's what I got to, to, to kind of have to accept is if I'm going to try to sit here and act like I'm a great coach or I want to you know profess to be a, 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 an effective coach, the effective coach isn't just the, the coach who can reach the, the players who, who, who are easily almost can coach themselves. I have to be a good enough, I have to have enough strategies, I have to have techniques that help me connect with players, you know, across all spaces and time and, and ages and stages. And one of the one of the big kind of, um, you know, an impetus for this was as I was struggling through, you know, how do I, you know, should I do this? Can I do this coaching? I read a book on parenting. It was like, you know, transformational parenting or something like that. And it just talked about really focusing on the specific behaviors, just the behaviors. This behavior is what's going on. This is the behavior I want you to do. Behavior substitution, right? Replacement behavior, that whole concept. Don't get emotional. Don't get up and down with it. Just simply identify the behavior and, you know, and, and direct what you want the replacement behavior to be and, and insist on it until the behavior changes. And then that's what you need to do. And once I started to figure out that it's it was less about big speeches and less about losing my wits and getting out of control, it was more about being better about identifying what's going wrong and how we can fix it. Well, thank you for sharing your vulnerabilities with us because I have the same vulnerabilities. I had the same struggles and uh, it doesn't have to be something extreme, like obviously getting fired. It's literally just, we know there's a better way and we know people want to be treated that way. And it, and it struck me as you saying that I've shared this quote a few times on here that it's like, okay, is the player uncoachable or do they just need to be coached differently than the way you're coaching them? And that speaks to what you just said about these individual differences and accounting for them. And I like it even further that you got into this. It's about knowing your players in terms of these individual relationships. And it's not a big speech. It's all these mini conversations, isn't it? It's mini conversations. And it's, uh, you know, also being secure enough in your command over your craft that you don't have to lose your mind and you don't have to put on a big show to prove that you know what you're talking about, right? You know, uh, you know it well enough that you could you could whisper it to them, you could tap them on the shoulder and bring them over for a private conversation. You could joke about it in film if necessary and appropriate, uh, but you know a, a different way to to get to it. And I think, um, you know, just being able to to understand people. And you said at the beginning, I mean, like this isn't rocket science. I I want I don't like I'm an adult. I don't want my adult supervisors or peers to talk to me in a way where I'm like, you know, like, why are you talking to me like that? Um, and I and I guess I would say this, too, which is the, you know, the pain of learning this lesson right from losing you know a job and kind of having to reflect. The truth of it is I couldn't sit here with you today being on this podcast as, as you know, you know, as kind of world famous as this podcast is and the type of coaches you get on this podcast. And I wouldn't be in the G League. I wouldn't have coached professionals, and I never chose to want to do it. But I couldn't coach the, the players I coach today if I still uh, embraced that old philosophy of, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, the boss is always right. Um, when I say it, you better listen, however which way I choose to say it. That stuff just doesn't doesn't work. Well, and you paralleled it to parenting as well, which is a big part of this to me, for me, having now experienced parenting, is that so much of it is that we want to solve the problem for our child or for our player, because we think we have an answer. 
But what we quickly realize is, it's like, okay, that's our answer. Does that mean it's mm -hmm. their answer or their best answer? And it's a more about holding space for them to figure it out, to struggle, and then provide them guidance or opportunity to learn what we hope they learn. Uh, and that's a big part of this, isn't it? It's not just always giving them the answer and telling them to do this. No, it, it isn't. But see, to be able to do that, uh, Chris, you've got to have that kind of command, again, over the curriculum, command over the scope and sequence of whether it's life and you're the parent or it's basketball and you're the coach or it's chemistry and you're the teacher. Whatever it is, you have to have enough command over the curriculum so that you're not freaking out in that moment that like, you know, like a kid, if I, you know, I'm a, I'm a three year old, I fall off my bike. I scratch my knee. I start crying. I think the world is over. And my parents are like, just relax. It's fine. It's just a skin knee. You'll be fine. I don't know that. I That to me, that's the end of my world. And, and I know that's kind of an extreme example potentially, but for some coaches that don't have enough worldview or enough command over the scope and sequence of how I can make this behavior fit into a bigger timeline, they freak out about that moment in time, thinking that that's the skin knee that's for sure the end of their world. But it's really just a small blip on the radar that if we just kind of work through it and know how to get to the other part of the timeline, we'd be fine. So back to the model, um, being authentic. And I love that it starts really with this, is which is humility, which is really essentially, it's not that we're saying don't have an ego as a coach, because I think egos are healthy for players and coaches. It's about humility. It's about understanding the greater purpose and subduing it and being able to operate in a plane where it's like, I just want everyone to be the best version of themselves. So can you share some other characteristics that you've found in this category that really coaches can kind of focus on to be able to help themselves improve? In terms of the the, uh, the authenticity piece? Authenticity, humility, yes. Right. I think it's just... I mean, you know, the old coach Popovich, you know, get over yourself line is is basically it. You know, I don't I tell, you know, uh, you know, young and I'm, I'm at this point in time, I'm an, I'm an older coach <laughs> in my circles, uh, you know, because there's a lot of young guys that are coming up in, in the G League and, and, you know, whatever. And, you know, I just tell them, you know, the whole the question is, how do you develop this humility? Um and I don't know the quote exactly. And there's an old quote that says there's two kinds of people, you know, those who are humble and those that are about to be humbled. Uh, and I think that for me, you know, it was that that clear feedback of you're fired. You know, what you're doing's not working. You were so sure that what you're doing was working. Uh, I think you have to either, you know, sometimes I call it blind spot reduction. You've got to find a way to surround yourself with people who are going to give you feedback, real feedback that lets you know, hey, if you're the head coach, your assistant coaches, hey, I'm noticing this. Be, you know, watch out for this. This player's having this kind of reaction to some of the things we're doing. You need to constantly be asking people around you, what do you see? What are you noticing? And create an environment in your in your workplace or in your staff where everybody knows that they, you really want to hear what they're seeing and the truth. The best weapon against kind of arrogance and ignorance is actually lots of truth, constant, honest feedback coming your way you have to build in kind of systems in a way where people around you are willing to share that with you. doesn't mean you're going to do everything they tell you. doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, blindly follow what's being told to you, but you're creating an atmosphere where when something's going wrong and people see it, they can bring it to your attention because as a leader, you've missed so much. There's no way you can keep track of everything. I love this conversation. Thank you. And uh, the feedback part, we're going to come 
to that and dive even deeper because again when i did this 30 40 years ago in my masters i can't even remember how old i am now but a long time ago just like you just referenced uh right. you know there was positive feedback there was negative feedback and both of those types of feedback can have non-specific and specific an example would be good job is just non-specific positive feedback it doesn't give any information right and then i say good job on your layup that's a little bit more specific in terms of that but really what we're aiming for here is as you say this prescriptive this diagnostic but also adding value to the player mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is again i'm telling them hey you know make your layup that's not adding any value for the player they know they yeah. missed the layup and they know they're trying to make the layup and i know they're trying to make the layup so to get into this diagnostic prescriptive type of feedback give us some more maybe give us another example and then give us some ideas about how to really focus in on this as a coach well i think you know the, the last you know this will kind of round it all out there's i guess there's two more pieces to it beyond diagnostic prescriptive then it, then the next part would be eq based so emotional intelligence so now i'm I've got to kind of take note of who this player is, maybe how do they receive information the best, you know what I mean? When's the best time to do it? What's the best manner? Maybe it is through video in a in a private conference. Maybe it's right there and then on the spot and they are completely secure. They're completely, you know, cool with anything you give them at any point in time. You have a relationship built up where you can give them that feedback without a problem. Um, so just that's the EQ part. And the last part of the, if there was a model, it would say it, it's clear, meaning I want to make sure as I go through this cycle of diagnostic, I diagnosed the thing, I gave a solution, right? I thought about the person and how they would best receive it and how they are as a learner. But now, was it clear? Did they did they pick up on it? And so that's the check for understanding part as well. So that kind of fits into your question is what are some examples? Uh, let's say we go through the whole thing. Uh, we're talking about guarding a pick and pop big let's say in you know our world here for us pick and pop big we call it a veer right so if, if it goes downhill the bigs you know sees his man's popping he's yelling veer 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 which tells the guard switch out or switch to my man and take the pop man so it's just a late switch now everybody on this podcast a lot of them know that terminology but i don't want to assume it so anyways that's a veer well you know, I want to make sure that that they understand it. You know, for instance, I might say, hey, we're veering the pop on the bit. So there's a lot of specificity that goes with that. In other words, how long does the guard escort the player into the three-point line before he veers off or she veers off to the shooter? Who's responsible for making that call? Is it the big? Is it the guard? You know, um, when does a call happen? You know, and so like, for instance, uh, and if the call doesn't happen for whatever reasons, let's say they both mess up and two people stay on the ball in a weird way. What's our what's our plan B? In other words, it would be full rotate. If you're the stunt man, you're going to have to emergency full rotate onto that popping big. So those are all things that might happen as part of it. But if they're not doing it right, it might start with, you know, Bill, you need to call that coverage early. You didn't call ice. You didn't say it three times. You said it once. You whispered it. The person across the gym couldn't hear it. So specific and measurable as you didn't say it three times and you didn't say it loud enough, you know? And so now at least I've got the call. I can direct the ball. Prescriptive is instead of saying it once, I need you to say it three times and I needed you to say it louder. You know, now you, you yelled veer, but you yelled it before the big even popped and he actually rolled to the basket. So you got to wait till the big makes the choice. You got to let the guard and sport that, that, 
ball handler inside the three-point line so he can also take away the three-point shot. And then once he's inside the three and you see that that guy popped, now you yell veer and guard, it's up to you to honor that call. You know, that all might happen and then the guard veers, but then the guard veers and he doesn't get a stick hand up and he doesn't get to the body on the closeout. The big gets the ball and he shoots it. The guard veered, but he didn't close out properly. Now there's a three-point shot that gets made. Well, that's the specific and measurable piece is the actual closeout by the guard, even though everything ahead of the time was done per- properly. That last piece of how the guard closed out to the body, the big might be wrong. So those are all examples of how you would you know, work through just a simple pick-and-pop veer, depending on where it went awry, is, is, is kind of an example. And at the end of the day, how do we make it clear? So then we maybe we teach that on Monday, but the next day, instead of saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, hey, run, blank, blank, blank. And maybe you bring a group over and say, I want you to pop Billy today. And then you just test to see if the group executes the veer the next day without prompting them, without telling them what's coming. And then you say, hey, we did this yesterday. Why didn't you do it? And then at least gets them like thinking like, oh, man, I guess we are supposed to just, you know, start from where we left off and actually pick up what's been being taught here on a daily basis. Well, I I like that example for a number of reasons. That last part is about connecting. You're connecting something from the day before, from within the practice to something that actually helps them be better and helps your team succeed. So I love that part of it. And then the other part of that example, which I want to highlight, because here's a common problem, again, consulting with different coaches at different levels, a common problem is too much feedback which is equally as destructive, isn't it? And you're saying to focus on prescriptive and diagnostic, but that doesn't mean give them all the information you know, does it? No, no. And that's what I'm saying. Like you have to parse it out and you have to know how to, I mean, that's what I say when I keep coming back to this phrase, command over your curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, the copy paste coach can probably just recite that we're supposed to veer pops. You know, but they may not be able to say that we have to direct the ball, we have to put it inside the three, we have to make the read on the pop, we have to do all these things in, in sequence. Maybe they don't see those pieces, you know, but they know what you're supposed to do against a pick and pop big. So yes, some of the 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 the, the layers there of instruction, that's I guess part of the art uh, is being able to know that you know what specifically is the thing that's getting wrong here, you know, and. Um, and then sometimes as a coach, you know, you, you, you're going to know your guys enough to know or girls to say, you know what, I know we're talking about veering, but this team does some things where they pop and then they, they, you know, they roll for a second and they pop and then there's some confusion. I also have to build in a plan that says in case both people go with the ball, because this guy's really good emergency situation is this. And now I've got to switch everybody else on the court to, even though they're supposed to do this, there's another part of this that you need to be responsible for in case there's a mistake here. And that also can be part of our plan. Yeah, part of your plan is to figure it out because there's not always a perfect answer. And then the other part that struck me, and I know you've seen this too, it's like, well, I've been in practices where it's the greatest coaching clinic, but it's not so good for the players. And that's what you're talking about, about layering information in. And I know like, Nelson, you could give me a one hour clinic easily on veering. But the players don't need to know it, and they don't need to know it all at once, which is another big part of that, isn't it? That's right. I mean, I was listening to y'all's pod with your wife. You guys were talking about dripping, you know, dripping, you know, kind of instruction in, you know, kind of layering it and dripping it in slowly. And that's really just what this is. You know, it's just being able to understand. And sometimes it's, 
you know, like when I was a young coach uh, starting out, you know, let's do all this. Let's build a defense from scratch. Let's do every drill, we'll do a one-on-one drill. Then we'll do a closeout drill. We'll do a pull. And then all of a sudden let's do the shell drill. Then all of a sudden, like, you know, they already knew all that stuff. So now sometimes I just get them playing in a cutthroat fashion early in a training camp. I say, we're doing this, we're doing that. Show them the basics. I let them play. And then I watch them play. Their play shows me where the gaps are. You know, our talk isn't good. Our talk's pretty good. That, that big knows how to talk. He must have played for five years. He looks really good with that. So instead of assuming that everybody has no knowledge when they run into the building, as far as, especially as a pro, even with young kids, get them playing and let their play tell you what needs to be worked on as opposed to you administering instruction over something that may, may already be known. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about ImmersionVideos.com. Have you checked out ImmersionVideos.com? Watch a NATO's practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally. Or get access to our new release featuring nine all-access practices from Alex Rama. Or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. ImmersionVideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you who are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to ImmersionVideos.com and check it out today. Yeah, dripping. I love that. Uh, thank you for connecting that for people because that's exactly what it is. It's dripping it in. But also the main part is exactly what we share all the time in the basketball immersion community is start with the game and figure out what you actually need to teach because then that skips all those useless progressions that take time away from actually what they need. So that's a super example in terms of that. I want to come back to the, the, the check for understanding the clear part of this because that's an important part too. And I, I've shared it with coaches and saying that like whenever you ask a player, do you understand, you're probably not getting anything back. So take it deeper with us and help us understand how to actually check for understanding. Well, yes, yeah, it starts with your questions, you know, and it might be a shot went up. Hey, reset it. And I think you have a term for this. And I and I was listening the other day, but but you know, where you you replay it or whatever. Yeah, you know, recreate, so, recreate. Recreate. Re recreate. Yeah. So I, I've always liked that one, you know, doing that for a while. But basically, hey, get back to where you were, shoot that ball. And what I might say, instead of telling them what to do, I'll be like, Chris, show me what you're supposed to do on the weak side when the shot goes up right here. Show me. And then all of a sudden, they'll either spur right into action, they'll do what they're supposed to do. And then I said, did you just do that when the shot went up last time? No. Okay. Why not? I forgot. Can we clean that up? Can you do that from here on out? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Instead of going to a long soliloquy about, about hey, when the shot goes up, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do all these things. Just say, hey, show me what's supposed to happen when this happens. Or again, the next day, checking for understanding. Like if we did, you know, a certain shell drill or we did a little drill, I'll just be like, show me, show me. And I'll just walk through, show me what happens, pass the ball, show me what happens. What are we supposed to talk about? We did Van Gundy the other day in, in practice, which is our transition defense drill. Five on four plus one. I taught it the day before. So this time when I, I said, just start passing, pass the ball, show me what's supposed to happen. They pass it. No one says anything. Nope. We're supposed to say something on every catch. What are we supposed to say? Oh yeah. Ball, gap, white, I got two. Okay, keep moving it, keep moving it, keep moving it. Everyone, everyone gets it. Okay, got it, coach. Now, show me what the closeouts are supposed to look like. 
show me. They get the they get the hand up. And I say, no, that's not it. Do it again. No, no. Close out to the body. It's transition. You got to get chest to chest, no airspace, no chopping of the feet. Get there. And then all of a sudden they're doing it right. They're doing it right. They're doing it right. Now, when we take four minutes of instruction after that or, or four minutes of competition, they're actually really keyed into the talk, the closeout, the talk, the closeout, because we did it the day before. We covered that. But today I consolidated that. And now they're really starting to get it. So that's kind of an example of checking for understanding in a different way than just saying, you know, just necessarily questions. I like saying, show me what it looks like. I love that example on another level too, which is like, how do you get players to communicate? You shut up. <laughs> like, like coaches, it's pretty simple. Someone like to get players to talk more, we have to be quiet to give them the space to do it. So that's such a great, a great example for that too. The other part of check for understanding, Dan Abrams, who was on the basketball podcast too, uh, a while ago, talked about this concept of memory consolidation, which I just want to reconnect for people. Cause it's also what you're talking about there is by asking them a question you're getting them to reflect, to think deeper. And essentially the question can be something as simple as before we move on, tell me something you understood and just getting yes. them to reflect whether you actually let them answer, you pause for 10, 15 seconds and you let them think. And then maybe I just ask one person, I ask Nelson, and then we move on. Or maybe I get them to share it with someone on the team and say, okay, 10 seconds, reflect on something you just learned that can help you and share it with a teammate. That memory consolidation is part of this clear check for understanding. Big time. And, you know, that you, you mentioned that, like, this is something I learned from uh, Coach Bullwinkle, Dave Bullwinkle, who used to work Snow Valley for years. Um, great mentor of mine. But when I was 20, shoot, 21, 22 years ago, I started working Snow Valley basketball camp in California. And Coach Bullwinkle was working the point guards. Well, one thing I always noticed when he did at the end of his segments, and he was great, he's a great coach, great teacher, he would say, he would look at the group and he'd say, tell me one thing you learned today. Tell me one thing you learned today. And he'd wait. And then I read the Teach Like a Champion book, you know, and they talked about this type of thing. And so that's another thing I'll do early in training camp. At the end of a practice, a full practice, say, tell me one thing you learned today. And it is amazing. And I'll say, I'll wait till I'm going to wait, you know, raise your hand when you're ready. You know, and we'll teach uh, like a champion strategy. Raise your hand when you're ready. But then you wait till everybody raises their hand before you call on somebody, right? So now instead of just letting that star student always intercept the question, always make the answer, you wait, make sure everybody participates. Then you say, I'm going to wait till everybody has their hand raised. All of a sudden, last person maybe who's a, a, a student who doesn't, you know, has to process a little bit longer. They raise their hand to the last one. Boom, I start with you. What's one thing you learn? Now that person takes part in it. They got to get the first chance at that, you know, that, that, that answer so that they don't have to end up being the last in line and says, well, he took mine, but now they're being part of like the learning they're, they're They feel safe about sharing what they learned. They feel effective as a learner because they got called on and they got an answer, right? Like I, I know how to kind of be part of what's going on here. That's another thing that, that I'll use as well is, is tell me one thing you learned today or, and make sure everybody raises their hands before I call on somebody. Brilliant. Great example. And that pause, which which is what you said there, that pause is so important because, I mean, we're obsessed as coaches to, to, to the detriment of learning with intensity. And, and it's like, as soon as a player doesn't answer a question right away, we often, you know, in the past would lose our mind. Like, why don't you know the answer? 
but it's like we didn't give them space to think. We didn't give them that time to think. And I love that idea of letting everyone get to the point where they can raise their hand. And it doesn't mean you're asking everyone. That's just great stuff. Thank you for that example. Uh, going back to this, then, if I don't have prescriptive or narrative type of information to be able to give to my, or sorry, diagnostic information to give to a player, is there a value to me saying nothing? <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, I know it I, seems yeah. obvious, but I think a lot <laughs> yeah. of coaches feel, and I shouldn't yeah. even say coaches. I think coaches know. Mm-hmm. I think it's like this narrative that exists from other people's perception of what coaching is that we have to be constantly talking and communicating and doing this. Yeah. I mean, I know I worked PGC years ago, uh, point guard college. And and I think they call it, uh, you know, the sage on the stage, you know, the guy, the person who needs to just feel like they know all the answers to everything. And yeah, you're right. Giving space to things. um, It's just, it's just a bandwidth thing. You know, there's an old statement, you know, the old say, I know you've heard this one. If everything's important, nothing's important and so if you're all everything's important every coach you know everything you stop all the time everything's important like no one knows what where what's really important you know so um another one kind of going with this clear you know kind of piece of the the modern functional coaching we're talking about there's an old general you know that says i may may have been MacArthur or whatever but i remember reading it once and he said that my job is not to give orders that can be understood my job is to give orders that cannot be misunderstood. That's that is like the critical piece. Like when I heard that as you know, reading it, I was like, that's exactly right. And and you need to know how to say things in a way that that's so clear that nobody can mistake it. And also they got to know at times like that's why, like, for instance, cutthroat, you know, we call it cutthroat. But, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, four on four live play with rules. And I know you guys, you know, you have your. uh loads and you add the loads and everything that's cutthroat back in from snow valley days uh but that that is that is the best teacher because like the rules do the teaching and the fact that you know that's a turnover no no points for that it just it just does the teaching and that's another lesson i learned is i need to create structure within my practice so that the the accountability of the drill the way i structure the drill creates the accountability not the volume in my voice not the intensity of my tirade it that does nothing to create the desired outcome right or it might create the desired outcome but there's some kind of uh byproducts of that approach that create you know lasting things that don't that aren't as good all i care about is that they know how to do what i want so really you know when i was uh you know coaching at syntex attack is an aau program in austin building you know that facility out at the pack um you know i was trying to think about how to, and i was tre- teaching coaches you know i was teaching these kind of volunteer coaches who are pl- helping with our teams and instead of calling it practice planning you know i call it practice engineering because you're really trying an engineer is trying to get certain a certain thing a certain set of objects to work in a design fashion to create a certain outcome and like practice is not about just planning it. You need to engineer each piece of that so that that cutthroat for defense creates closeouts, creates blockouts, creates jump to the ball. Whatever it is you want, you create those rules and that creates the outcomes. So what I feel that we've done and what we're doing here is we're adding a language and a cohesive, under, understandable language to things that I think a lot of coaches have been doing 
for the last 30, 40 years that are very good coaches, right? Like using the point system, something like that. That's a, a constraint-led approach to coaching. Coaches have always used that. But mm-hmm. to now connect it the way you connected it there is what we share all the time. Connecting it to that, that's the consequence. We don't need mm-hmm. to run them. We don't need to yell at them. We need to create a consequence. And as you said, one of the one of the worst consequences is obviously losing in a drill or losing in general. And another one is losing possession of the ball and not getting to play offense. So I always say one of the most powerful consequences is, oh, you lost your chance to play offense. And that's really what these things help shape for us um, because we shouldn't be spending our time coaching effort, right? And generally, we don't have to coach effort as much as people think, do we? You don't as long as you design the practice in a way that it takes care of itself. I mean, this is this is the lesson of it all. Like, I don't need to lose my cool to get you to play at a high level. I, I, you know, I told one of my friends once, the best, the best compliment I ever received probably in coaching, I was coaching freshman basketball at Austin High School. Um, and you know, it was pregame, you know, our team was out there and they were, you know, they were real sharp. They're doing everything right. You know, the talk was, you know, good and everything. And I'm over there, you know, on the bench before the game. And I'm just sitting there very calmly with my legs crossed, just, just watching, you know, just relaxing, you know, right before the game, it's just, you know, only peaceful time as a coach sometimes. (laughs) So, so I'm doing that. And, you know, even I, I precursor, the precursor to this is, you know, a week before it's one of our first games. And I tell the players in practice, I said, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing in two weeks. I'm going to be sitting right here, right here. And I put a chair. I'm going to sit right here. And I want all this to look completely like I've lost my mind. But I'm going to be sitting here, right here, calm as anything, right? And so a parent after the game from the opposing team came up to me. She's like, you know, I don't know how you do it, but I watch your kids in the pre practice you know, in the warm-up drills, in the game. They're so intense. They're so, you know, like so connected or whatever. And you're just so calm on the sidelines, you know, and I don't know how you do it. And that was like the best compliment I could ever receive as a coach. I, I love that. That's such an, I'm glad you connected that because I say it all the time. My job as a coach is not as a motivator. I am not a motivator. I am the creator of the environment for you to be motivated. So if you're not motivated, I didn't create the environment. And you know what I constantly come back to, obviously, which supports what we share is we always play basketball in practice. So generally, they're always motivated, right? Because there's offense versus defense with the goal of scoring. And as soon as we remove the goal of scoring or we remove the defense or we remove the offense, motivation is going to drop. That's just natural. No matter how much we get on them about it, a three-on-zero drill is not going to be as intense as a three-on-three drill with the goal of scoring. Yeah, and and I mean, it's just, it's not, I mean, I, you know, we're talking about it and we are making it sound very, um, you know, sort of scientific and everything, and it is, right? But well, it really, there is science it just, to it. There is science right. to it if people want it, but mostly right. it's just common sense. <laughs> right, it is common sense. You know, it's like, I don't like to be bored. Yes, you know, uh, I like if to. They're play. bored. It's our responsibility, right? Because we didn't create an effective practice. It's a hundred percent our responsibility, and that's that's. And if they're not engaged, but it goes back to again, it's the teaching model, also to the coaching model. They're they're both. They should be the same. Uh, but sometimes people, you know, they separate them. But you know, again, it, you go go watch a great team. I mean, I I've been really engaged in history classes, and I've been bored to death in history class. I've been really engaged in math classes. 
or the death in math classes. It's not necessarily the subject. It's the manner in which the, the instruction is delivered. You know, obviously, it's created by the instructor. But like everybody here who listens to the podcast has, has taken a course that they didn't think they would like the subject. And the teacher is just out of bounds good. And they're like, man, that is a great teacher. But they know how to deliver information and connect things in a way so that you can receive it on your terms and so that you can engage with it in a, in a way that like I, I read books in high school. I just didn't ever really like when growing up in high school and I had great English teachers, but I just, you know, I didn't really read the books for personal enjoyment. I read the books because it was the assignment. You know, and it wasn't until like college where I actually learned that there's actually like coaching books and leadership books that I chose to start reading that I was like, man, I love reading, but I never loved reading like this when I was in high school. This is not no, no insult to my English teachers, which were very good. But but that's just I just didn't like connect the reading like that's just the thing I'm choosing to do. I just it was like a part of a class that I needed to do. So dive deeper for us just a little bit on this emotional intelligence. Yeah, I think EQ based. Uh, I think one of the things that that comes to mind. So, OK, this is all born out of. So when I was at um, in Austin running this facility, uh, the PAC, Centex Attack, you know, first year we had coach, we had 13 coaches, had to hire them, you know, volunteer coaches for this. You know, they got paid, but it wasn't a lot, you know, and I started to like, you know, I, I hired them based on their experience. Like, oh, yeah, you played. And then, OK, yeah, you played in college. All right. You, you know, great former player great you know i started to realize like they that they we didn't share the same language of what 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 is coaching like what is coaching like it's not again this this delivery of information or screaming and yelling at players it's all this stuff so for me you know when we I literally defined it into three domains for the coaches this was the quote the portrait of a master coach for our program the first layer was eq emotional intelligence uh, and we defined it as the ability to perceive, control, and evaluate your players' emotions and needs. Okay. So what that meant, and we broke it down into three things. One was relational rapport. You know, how do you connect with a player, you know, on their level on something? You know, you just kind of connect with them. You, can you develop a rapport with them? The next thing is, do you have like a growth mindset mastery? Do you know that how to, you know, you know, not to create like these outcomes based on anything. You how to create an environment where mistakes are okay, uh, but that you learn from them, and that's how we grow. And then the last part of what you know we call them EQ, emotional intelligence, is you have to be really good at what we call world class feedback. And world class feedback is what we're talking about here: specific, diagnostic, you know, specific and measurable. Don't do this, do this. And so that was an area, and we would have, you know, instead of just We'd, we'd have this model for them. And then we'd say, we're going to, you're going to be evaluated on this by the players, by the parents, and by me as the director. And we shared the model. And then we'd have a little mid-season thing. We'd send out an online survey. And then we would say, hey, how does your play? And we define all these terms. And so the, and then we'd give the coaches feedback on, here's what they're saying about you in terms of this domain of emotional intelligence. It also speaks to that parents, players, they, they, they do want a framework of understanding. And I, and I love that part about coaching nowadays is I find, again, players are, don't want to just do what we tell them. They want to understand it. They truly do. And that's a big part of it. So I love that example uh, that you just shared, right? Do you feel that way as well, that players want to truly understand it a little bit deeper? 
They do. And what, 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 what a lot of folks don't understand is that just everyone, the humans are advancing so quickly right now, you know, that the players that we coach that are 12, 13, they are exposed to so much. I mean, they can get on YouTube. They can, they can find out how to, you know, set up a pick and roll, the reads, all this. What does John Morant do on the pick and roll? What does Trey Young do? Like they come to our gym. They already like practice the things that they just saw on YouTube and they know the progression. They know what a snake dribble is already. Isn't they, that amazing? They, they know a snake <laughs> dribble. They know the different finishes, the same, same finish, the this and that. You know, they know all that, the veer step. They know all these things that, that they can see because you know what? They, you know, if I was a young kid in this era, I'd be the same way. I, we didn't have access to that type of stuff. So what what this is what it goes back to, you know, today's coach needs to be obviously in command of all that knowledge. Right. But now in command of knowing how to, again, emotional intelligence. This guy knows this. This girl knows this already. I don't need to worry about tactics and strategies with this person. I need to kind of bolster up, you know, the way they communicate with their teammates. That's their sweet spot. That's what's important to them in terms of their development. You know, uh, they, they got all this stuff like I work with players like just run circles around me. I can, you know, that they're fantastic players that I, I could never do the things they do, but there are things that I can help them with in terms of situational awareness, how they speak to teammates, how they recognize certain situations on the court, how they compose themselves when they have challenges. That's, that's the coaching that happens a lot at this level, which because they already have worked so hard at the skills and, you know, we just have to, you know, tighten up the reads here and there. Um, but the, you know, the, that's the, the, the part of it that, 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 you know, I think people need to know is that, you know, you just need to be able to connect the stuff to the players wherever they're at. This concept of the sweet spot that I know was in, I think it was in um, the talent code, right? The talent code was that book talked about the sweet spot, like that the, the world-class instructors, the master instructor, I think they called it, you know, has that ability to know that, and that sweet spot changes every day. You know, I'm going to add, like you say, drip in, a new a piece of constraint or a new challenge every day. And, you know, like you say, I think I've, I listened to you, but like, same thing, we have a certain shell drill, a certain sequence that's the same every day. It might be Van Gundy, but every day we're adding a new challenge to that that thing, a new way to make it better so that they're getting better and not having to learn a new drill every day. Well, and it speaks to the expertise part of it, which is the talent code, the sweet spot part, which is that, that that experts, actually, it's not about more. It's about distinguishing the important from the unimportant. And I think that's the example of a teacher who's progressing in their learning is they're starting to really understand, okay, I don't need to worry about this, but this is important, right? And spending mm -hmm. time and really dialing in on the things that really matter the most. And I think that's such an important path in learning. This has been so valuable. I know it's not the normal technical tactical that you and I could geek out on for hours together, but but help us connect this back to how does this help with player development? How does this help with running a, an NBA or G League defense, for example? Yeah, I think, you know, that, that that's kind of, this has kind of almost been reverse engineered. You know, I, I'd have to work over the years to try to find these ways to create the the language in a way and the, and the structure of the practice so that the players were held accountable uh, again, because, you know, I can't scream and yell at the professional players. They just have to be held to account by the structure of the practice. So, like, for instance, with defense, you know, everyone talks about being tough and smart, and, you know, playing together. So we did, you know, I, I you know, I did have to, you know, present our defense to our team and talk about our, our big ideas. But when I said tough, I wanted to be specific and measurable with what, what do I mean by tough? And I define tough as all five players on the court sprinting back on defense. You know, 
all five players are able to play physical without fouling. All five players on the court are be are, are gang rebounds. Everybody's a rebounder. So I wanted them to know when I say tough, it can't be four out of five, and it can't be three out of five. If our team was going to be tough, all five of you on that court need to be able to do these things, and these are all within your control, and we're going to teach you how to do physical with that. We're going to teach you the techniques. But at the end of the day, we're only going to be considered tough if everyone on the court is doing these things when every shot goes up. So that would be an example of tough for smart uh, you know, the three tenets were tough, smart, and connected. So for us, smart, the first element of smart is knowing your personnel. You know, everyone talks about KYP, know your personnel. So if you want to be a smart defender, you need to know are you guarding a shooter, a driver, right, left, all those things. What coverages are we executing? The second part of smart is appropriate help. So when I'm off the ball, how much do I help? I'm guarding a non-shooter. I can shrink the floor more. I'm guarding a very good shooter. I can shrink, but then I got to inch back out to my my check whenever the you know whenever the ball's coming my way. So this is appropriate help, knowing that when the ball gets picked up off the dribble, we can fan back out to our players instead of staying in that help. So this is another example. Being smart is I wanted to know that not we're not always just helping willy nilly. You need to know how to help appropriately based on the threat level of what's taking place. Uh, and lastly, as far as being smart, we call it assignment excellence which is basically, you know, you know, I would end up, again, this is born out of coaching in the pros. You know, I wanted to be able to grade players in a way and hold them accountable. So after every game, I would do a defensive missed assignments, you know, report. It would, I'd call it MIA, missed or incomplete assignments. And I would literally catalog every mistake, player, the amount of points it cost. So then I would be able to tell a player, you know, Chris, you gave up seven mistakes and I'd have them listed. I'd have the videos so they could see them. Seven mistakes for 15 points. You gave up 15 points on these controllable errors that we've worked on in practice. So I know you're getting that box score that tells you you scored 15. I'm giving you a box score that never gets produced anywhere else. That says that you gave up 15 that were within your control. You know, so that's an example of a specific diagnostic prescriptive, you know, emotionless, you know, this is the facts type presentation of the information. That's just great stuff. Thank you for sharing that. And you know what, Nelson, we'll also challenge everyone to see who listened to the end of the podcast for that gold, that MIA gold. So uh, that is just wonderful. I cannot thank you enough for sharing the game with us. Just tremendous stuff throughout. Yes, sir. And, you know, I appreciate the time here. Um, you know, it'll be a challenge for my guy, Josh Welch, who's a huge fan of yours. He's a coach here in Texas. Um, he was, uh, he was, he was thrilled that, that I'd be on here. So I'm giving him a shout out, but uh, you know, just, Again, uh, an honor to be here. Um, you know, the ability to kind of, you know, we talked about it ahead of time, sharpen the saw. Uh, you know, obviously none of this stuff was, uh, you know, I didn't know the sequence of these questions, which has been good for me. And, and like, it's just been a very, very easy conversation um, because I guess it's something you're probably passionate about. I know you are. I know I am. Um, how to teach uh, is, you know, on the hierarchy of, of, of needs, how to teach has to be above what to teach, as you said before. Uh, and, you know, you know, we may we do another one another day about some of the specifics of defense and player development and all this stuff. But all I'll say is that even with our player development, we do the same things. You know, it's you know, that's something that this year I, I got, you know, I'm not in charge of our defense this year. I'm in charge of player development and, you know, taking some of this approach to that. And one last thing I'll say, you know, as far as the strategy for coaches, because I know it applies with player development. Uh, the start, stop, continue kind of model. So like, 
you know, we have this thing, we show them data about the shot charts and where the shots are coming from and all these kind of things, numbers and points per possession on different things. You know, we, we give them a little data so that it's not, you know, so there's data there. Uh, we show them videos so we they know those concepts and we marry those concepts to what we're t- training on the court. We use similar terminology about what we're doing, like you said, snake dribbles or whatever. We use that that terminology on the court, in the video. But then the one piece that I think has been really good that, I, that, that we put into that is what we call the start, stop, continue. So now when I show them and we check in every you know 12 to 15 games, show them the data, show them the video, but then at the end, we go to start, stop, continue. Okay, so based on what we talked about, what do you want to start doing as a player? And it's their choice. You start to do this. And then I might have one free pick as a coach that I on each one of these things. So if they miss something, I say, well, I think this one too. What do you think? Like, yeah, yeah, let's do that one. Then we say stop. Yeah, I need to stop, you know, jogging back on defense. I need to stop being quiet, you know, as a point guard or whatever. And I say, okay, you got them. I don't need to add anything. Continue, continue showing up on time, getting your shots before practice, continue watching, you know, whatever that, that they're doing well, making them do like a, a needs assessment that makes them self-reflect on what, what am I doing that's working? What am I doing that needs to stop? That's been something that we implemented this year that I've seen good progress from our players when they have to think about and make the choices about what they're wanting to do and take ownership over. I love it. I love it. Those two last things definitely uh, connect with me. The MIA and the start, stop, continue. Just great stuff. Thank you, Nelson. Yes, sir. Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept, but with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what Basketball Immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the Basketball Immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. Join our Basketball Immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.